Hello, everyone. It's the Book and Film Globe podcast, and I am Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more on the site and on this weekly podcast. We have an excellent show for you this week. I'm going to talk to film critic Stephen Garrett about the new Martin Scorsese movie, Killers of the Flower Moon. In my mind, it's not up there with my favorite Scorsese movies like Casino or Goodfellas or The Wolf of Wall Street or Raging Bull or The King of Comedy. What a filmography, but it's still a very worthy film and worth talking about. And Stephen and I have many thoughts about Killers of the Flower Moon. That'll be up in a little bit. And I'm also going to talk to Scott Gold about the new Netflix series, The Fall of the House of Usher from creator Mike Flanagan. It's a modern, postmodern take on Edgar Allan Poe's uh, works, and it's uh, set in the modern day. And uh, Scott really likes it. I think it's kind of a, a mixed bag at best, but we're going to talk about that. But first, Sharon Vane is back on the podcast, and she covers censorship and uh, school library issues for us. And we're going to talk about a recent decision by Scholastic, the book publisher and the book fair purveyor, to um, put certain kinds of books in a, a special category that will quote-unquote help librarians and school districts choose what to expose their kids to. It's been widely uh, reviled uh, by the literary community, and Sharon has covered it for us. And after these musical notes, we'll be right back to talk about that issue. We spend a lot of time on Book and Film Globe talking about issues of school censorship and restrictions uh, on children's books. And I would say we're a pretty much a preeminent publication in the country and the world uh, on that issue. And that's largely thanks to the efforts of our intrepid school books and politics reporter, Sharon Vane, who is here today to talk to me about the latest development in this never-ending battle between um, politicians and parents and publishers and libraries. It's, it's an ongoing censorship struggle, wouldn't you say? It is. Thank you for having me. And, um, you know, thanks for always giving a platform because I think it's important. Um, this has been going on the most recent stint for a couple years. And every time, you know, we say this a lot, every time we think something can't get weirder, it does. And I think what's going on with Scholastic Book Fairs is a great example of that. You know, it's an interesting story. And it's, and it's kind of a vibrant field uh, of debate, right? Because What's happened here is that Scholastic, which is the major, they do the book fairs in pretty much every school. They have, they, they did it when I was a kid, 40 years ago. They were, they were 50 years ago, they were doing this. And um, now they've created like a diversity box, for <laughs> lack of a better term, like a special category. It is. I mean, it's a, it's a special category. And, and, you know, we've had a lot of coverage of everything going on with state laws are really exploding, you know, Florida, Texas, you know, all around the country, we're seeing these kind of restrictive policies and restrictive state laws really kind of impeding what schools and librarians can have in terms of content. So what Scholastic decided to do for its book fairs is Let's group, you know, I think it's 64 is the exact number of titles that could cause a problem with some of these major laws that have passed. And we're going to put them all together. And then as part of the process, uh, you know, if I'm a school librarian and I'm choosing what I'm going to feature at the fair, I know that the books in this share every story, celebrate every voice box 
are the ones that could be a problem. Right. And so it that, that will be responded to differently by different uh, schools that are holding fairs. Some will be like, let's put these front and center. These are the books we want to push. And then others will be like, let's uh, let's hide them in the corner or let's not feature them at all, depending on the district and the state and the laws. So it, it's very bizarre. And yeah, I, I guess like I wasn't entirely sure um, what was in these books. I mean, you know, 60, 64 books, you're not, you're not just talking about like, you know, books about, uh, you know, like gender queer, which is sort of the most controversial book of our time. You know, it seemed, it looked to me like it was like lots of books featuring like, you know, little black girls on the cover. Right. I mean, these are for elementary school book fairs and you're right. The books that really capture all of the headlines, you know, the gender queer, that this book is gay, those are not in here. Those are not featured at Scholastic Book Fairs. Um, the books that are in this box are things like I Am Ruby Bridges, which is a memoir for kids by Ruby Bridges, who at six integrated an all-white school in Louisiana. There's a picture book biography of Supreme Court um, Justice uh, Ketanji Jackson. There's graphic novels from Newberry winners. I mean, these are books that you're right. In some schools, it'd be like, awesome, let's put them all together and really highlight them. But a lot of those in the publishing industry see this move as essentially putting them into a little, like, steer clear of this. This is the problem box. So you may not want this. You got to pick the box to get it. Yeah. So admitting that these are books with a liberal bias, essentially, and sort of making it easy for uh, school districts that may have a different political orientation to just not include them and not expose them. And just, these books, these don't even seem that controversial. Like I, when I see stuff like, uh, like gender queer or some of the other books you mentioned, I'm, I'm like, okay, I can see how, you know, a, you know, suburban Dallas parent might find that a little, a uh, little off putting, but, but, you know, there, there are very few people in this country who are going to object with their, to their kid reading a picture book biography of a Supreme Court justice. Well, exactly. And I mean, I wouldn't even say these are liberal focused books. They're just books for elementary schoolers that happen to feature, you know, black, Hispanic, Muslim kids. I mean, they're not selling some terrible message. It's just, here's a picture book about a kid that learned about, you know, John Lewis and was inspired by him. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call that liberal, I would just say, here's, you know, a book that might reflect some kids' reality. And I think the critics of whom there are many, um, at the time of the writing, I think something like 450 authors and illustrators had signed an open letter to Scholastic asking them to change course. By this morning, they had 1,400 signatures and probably more by now. So people are really pushing back. Um, you know, authors are saying we've fought so hard to get more representation, to get these books that reflect multiple realities, you know, out there on shelves. And now by putting them in this box, you're essentially signaling to people in places where these laws do exist, these could be a problem. You might not want to pick these. And then they're not at the fair. You know, the kids don't have a chance to be exposed to them at the fair. And, you know, people are saying Scholastic is doing the censors work for them. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like an act of political cowardice on Scholastic's part. This isn't even really a story about censorship. It's kind of like anticipating censorship 
and, and being afraid of it. Did you talk to anybody from Scholastic for your story? I, I, I seem to I, I seem to recall there wasn't mostly it was like critics represented. Yes, um, I did talk to someone from Scholastic. So they put out a public statement. This has been going on since August. And I think as librarians started talking to each other more and kind of speaking at regional conferences, um, it, you know, kind of got going on Twitter where this is happening. Hey, whoa, this is a problem. And people were criticizing it. So Scholastic came out with a statement where they explained, okay, we did this because of laws. And I did speak with someone in corporate communications in Scholastic who I think had to be really careful about what she said. I definitely got the impression that the intentions were not to sideline all of these books into a box that would have a negative worldview. Um, the intent was we're going to help the librarians that are afraid of being fined or losing their jobs if they put the wrong book out there because some Florida parent's going to say like, ah, that book about Ruby Bridges is making my white kids feel bad. So I think in their worldview, they're helping people. I find it fascinating, the more I think about this, that no one at Scholastic, either they didn't think, wow, the optics of this are really bad, or if they did think that, they decided to go forward with it. It's just the, the ripple effects of this, so many people are pushing back in the publishing world. And I, I truly have not seen librarians coming out and saying, wow, this was like actually a really big help because we were afraid people were going to find us if we had the wrong book. And I appreciate Scholastic doing this. On the other hand, everyone is like, boycott Scholastic. Let's find another book fair provider. How dare they? Um, and I think it really hurt, particularly Scholastic authors. Um, Scholastic, the book publishing company is not the same thing as Scholastic Book Fairs, but they're obviously under the same corporate umbrella. And I talked to one author who said, it, you know, it kind of feels like the same people that are supposed to promote your books are now saying there's a problem. Yeah, it's, it seems to me like a, just a blunder. You know, I, the real story is what the conversations were to even make this happen in the first place. And, and it's also like just a bad business decision. Like, Everyone knows that having your book banned is really good for sales. Yeah, I'm going to push back on that. That is a myth. You know what? That is good for people like, you know, whose books are already popular, like, you know, The Diary of Anne Frank or Mouse, books that are already really well known. It probably does increase their sales in the moment. But the vast majority of these books that are being soft-centered or banned are not from authors that people know. And it does affect their sales. It really does. Um, we've covered a lot of soft censorship. You know, they rely on school visits and the school visits have dried up because people are afraid, what if I invite this author to speak and um, they talk about something that they shouldn't? Um, definitely the authors I spoke with for this story talked about how they've been asked, you know, you can talk about this book, but not about this book. Or you can talk about this book, but don't talk about systemic incarceration of Black people. Um it's widespread. It just takes many forms. Again, like I don't think they did this deliberately to try to censor their authors. I just feel like they kind of um, shot themselves in the foot here. Uh, it's an interesting story, and we will cover it as it develops on Book and Film Globe. Sharon, thank you so much for staying on top of these issues as always. Thanks for having me. Sometimes you got to do one thing even though you mean to do another thing. But I'm not in any kind of trouble at all.
None at all. Killers of the Flower Moon is the best movie of the year. My wife likes her nice things, so not as much as you do. You're picking the fight with the wrong person. You want to make trouble, make it big. You gotta just, you gotta tell me what you told them. All of it, what you tell them. I told them all of it. All of it? You're nice. Oh my God. Have you told all the truths? Our movie of the week is the long-awaited Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese, adapted from a book by New Yorker writer David Grant. I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's the uh, the circles that I travel in online, but I feel like this has been a very hyped kind of mainstream art film. Well, it's a Martin Scorsese film, so it's that, that's by definition a mainstream art film. Stephen Garrett has seen it twice. And has written about it once, and I've seen it once and written about it zero times. But I'm here to talk about it uh, with Stephen right now. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Hello. So, I don't know. I wouldn't say that I found uh, Killers of the Flower Moon disappointing. It wasn't like my most anticipated watch of the year. It, it To me, this film feels like the, the definition of uh, homework, do, cinematic homework. <laughs> it's prestige. Or like eating your vegetables. It's like yeah. they're good for you. They they do taste good, but you're you know you're not exactly dying to dive back in. You know, whereas Scorsese's you know movies that I like the best, like Goodfellas or The Wolf of Wall Street, those are movies that I, that can can withstand a second or third viewing. Whereas I'm never going to see Killers of the Flower Moon again. <laughs> Oof. Well, it's long. It's long, and you get it. You get it, you know. But doesn't again. It's not to take away from the quality, um, but it is like self-conscious quality in some ways. It's so self-conscious. It, it really is. It's so painfully respectful. You know, I almost wish it was a little more freewheeling in showing characters being maybe surprisingly flawed or surprisingly heroic uh, when they uh, are otherwise just absolutely sanctified or villainous. You know. And it, it, that that sort of approach feels a little dull after a while. And it's just three and a half hours long. They could have easily, I, I just, it was the first time I've seen a movie of his, maybe the second time, because I'm not a big fan of Wolf of Wall Street. I think that's too long. But I get that its length is part of its message, which is excess, you know. With this, I don't understand why this is three and a half hours long. It doesn't take place over decades the way that The Irishman did, which I loved. And this is also not a sweeping epic with, uh, you know, uh, uh, scenes of, you know, a cast of thousands, you know. I feel like so much of it takes place in rooms between two people. Yeah, it rarely leaves the small Oklahoma town. Um, yeah. Maybe it goes to Oklahoma City. <laughs> you know, but it's not like Gangs of New York where you had the whole, like, Chinachita being used for to recreate downtown New York. Like, this is a small town that looks, you know, like De Niro's house is like one big building in the middle of a prairie. You know what I mean? And it's beautifully done. It, yeah, it is. But it looks like a backlot western town. Yeah. It, with cars on it. So I, I, I agree. I it, there There is no... Two and a half hours, okay, it is a... You have to set up the mystery and then you have to unravel it. But there's not really, like you point out in your review, 
there's not really a mystery, right? The movie, is, the book is about the, these killings of uh, Osage Indians in Oklahoma in, ni- in the 1920s who had gone, gotten very rich when uh, they accidentally discovered oil on their land. And then the white people, the wildcatters moved in and uh, gradually started murdering them. And, you know, David Grand, he didn't uncover this. I mean, it was a story at the time, and it was federally investigated, and the people who did it were caught and imprisoned. But it was kind of forgotten history until he sort of revived it in his book. Yeah, I mean, but there were other books. There was dramatizations. The movie itself shows that there was like a radio show about it. There was even a movie that's been lost to time. But, you know, it, it certainly was known in the public conscious at the time and in the years following. It's just kind of been forgotten until now. Right, but it's this modern take on it. But, you know, I would say that, you know, a good 75% of the people who see this movie, maybe not 75%, but a, a good percentage of the people who see this movie will have already read the book or have read an article about the book or have read an article about the movie. So it's not like this is like a great catalog of surprise. And unlike, let's say, what uh, TV's Watchmen did with the burning of Tulsa Black uh, community uh, in around the same era, they, they grafted that onto a superhero narrative uh, set in the present and used that as, as, as a jumping off point. So that was a really creative way to, to sort of reclaim history, whereas this is just, you know, this is like a chamber piece. And, and also, sorry, before we move on to the next point, which you just said, like, I, they name check Tulsa in the movie. Um, you see them watch it happen in a newsreel. Um, and the book does not at all mention Tulsa. And I, I think that's a great addition, but it is a name check. It's like in passing, um, you get a sense of that fear, the racial fear, you know, and it's really smart idea, but they, it's really not developed in, a, in an interesting, like, I don't know. It, it's a, it's a toss off. Yeah. Well, and they kind of like, this character's like, this is another Tulsa. I'm like, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that bit of insightful. <laughs> well, it could have been something, could have been more, right? I kind of feel like that could have been a moment. This is another Holocaust that will happen in 15 years, you know? It's like, come on. Yeah. Come on, cut it out. So, all right. So here's the thing. Like this movie, like you, you have to really like Leonardo DiCaprio to watch this movie because there's a, I mean, it's ostensibly about murders of these Osage uh, Native Americans. And it is true that Lily Gladstone, as DiCaprio's wife, does get a lot of she gets a lot of screen time and she's quite good, but there's a lot of like Leonardo DiCaprio sitting in pool halls, drinking whiskey and glowering with his bad teeth. And just glowering. He just looks like he's grimace, you know, and he looks like he's made of oatmeal. Like, I don't get it. His teeth are weird and messed up and yellowish. And like there's you don't understand why she would be attracted to him, which is so strange because you have Leonardo DiCaprio. Like you could make him. He's dumb as a bag of rocks, you know, he's, he's an idiot. And he keeps saying all he wants is money, and he, he's just – at least he's very forthright. You're like, you know exactly what he wants and what he does and what he needs. But I don't believe their relationship – I really didn't as much as I feel like they need you to believe the relationship in the movie to make the movie work, let alone to earn three and a half hours of watching them together. I just – they're excellent actors, and I think you know they could, they could sell it. Uh, but for some reason, it just felt – I don't know. I mean, why, why would she go for him? Why did they make him so ugly and dumb? And why is Robert De Niro so menacing? That character should have been played by like a John Lithgow type or somebody who is a little bit more warm and convincing as a sort of, you know, a wolf in the in, in the sheep's meadow, you know? Sure. And you know, also, like, this is a problem that I haven't seen mentioned in a lot of reviews. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but DiCaprio is too old for this part. Oh. He pops in 
he's like just fresh off the boat from World War One, and he's fifty. He's like clearly fifty years old. I'm like, I don't. Yeah, no. You know, and and even De Niro is too old. Like, I mean, they say at the end, like he died at age eighty-seven, and you know, spoiler alert, in a nursing home in Arizona. I'm like, he's eighty-seven. In the moon. <laughs> no, it's really it's it's so true. And then you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I hadn't I hadn't written it down or, or made note of it that uh, like it, it bothered me so much when Jesse Plemons shows up as Tom White, who is basically the beginning of the FBI, which is the subtitle of Grant's book and not really a major point of the film. You know, he really underplayed that in the film, which I think is an interesting choice. But anyway, Jesse Plemons keeps calling uh, DiCaprio's son. Come here, son. You got to do this, son. And I'm like, who do you call it, son, man? That guy's got 10 or 15 years on you. You're right. He, he should be a, a 22-year-old idiot instead of a, what, a 42-year-old oaf? It's so weird. Yeah, maybe, maybe uh, you know, Jesse Plemons can act. Maybe reverse the two parts and have Leo show up. Well, they were. That's the thing. They were originally. And then Leo was like, I don't want to play this role. It's not a big role and it's a white savior role, which I totally get. But again, that goes back to the larger thing that you were saying, which is that this is a little too considered and respectful. And, you know, to his credit, to the credit of everybody making the film, they recognize that as white people, this is not their story to tell. And they're trying to honor the Osage by, you know, uh, playing the white savior stuff down. You know, well, then if that's the case. Then make, uh, Molly, the true center of the movie, as opposed to someone who occasionally is the center and gets these like gratuitous narrations that then fade away because it's not really from her point of view. Yeah. So it's like if you're gonna, if you're going to commit, if you're going to do it, then do it. I mean, she's a you know because she's kind of a cipher too. Like we don't really know is she dumb? She doesn't seem dumb. She doesn't seem dumb. She could be. I you know I, I she's kind of a victim. She's a victim. They're all victims. And and it is true, like all the Osage are victims. But uh, to see uh, a, a group of people in a story, a film, be portrayed as victims, like un unjust victims, gets a little, especially over three and a half hours, gets a little tiring, gets a little dull. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that this feels like, unlike, let's say, I, I think the only, the only movie you can really compare uh, this to so far this year is Oppenheimer which uh, was also extremely long and very also just a lot more uh, dynamic. Uh, whereas this was kind of very, it's very static and very dull. It, it, it's odd, Stephen, that the part that I liked the most, which I, I believe you mentioned in your review as well is the sort of, where are they now uh, segment, the it's sort of in memoriam segment they do at the end in, in the style of a 19, late 1940s, early 1950s radio show. I found that extremely, that was like the most fun part of the movie. Right, right. Well, I think the beginning, it really flies. The first hour or so, you're being introduced to this world. Like, I think the direction and the storytelling is really sharp and the characters are interesting. And then it just goes into this sort of plateau of very little shape or form or, or drive to the narrative. And then the hat last half hour is this mind-numbing uh, legal, like, court battle, Right. Um, where suddenly Brent, uh, uh, bloated Brendan Fraser like pops up. Why is Brendan Fraser in this movie? It's very distracting. John Lithgow pops up. Why is he there? And then, like you say, the last ten minutes, this wonderful uh, coda, this epilogue, is so pitch perfect and so in, in, ingenious and inventive. And you wish the rest of the movie had been that way, or at least the middle, the muddled middle. Imagine if Scorsese had had the chutzpah 
to frame the entire movie as this radio play, you know? Right, and right. Kind of fade yeah. in and out of the narrative or whatever. I mean, that that, that may that may have been it's probably more twee than uh, he wanted to go, but he he had the guts to do it at the end, you know. And yeah. it was very very clever. Um, and I just I just wish that the rest of the movie had had some of that formal invention and joy. Although I know it's not a joyous story. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, no, I think he would have felt like that would have been too irreverent and he doesn't want to be irreverent. He wants to be reverent. And I think that is ultimately what kind of paralyzes the movie to a certain extent. It's too reverent. It doesn't have that playfulness that brings it alive that makes you care about it. It do, it, it is not fun to watch. No, that last part is, the first hour is. I don't know if you feel the same way about the first hour, but I, I had a blast. I was fine with it. For, for a lot of the middle part of the movie, I felt like Leonardo DiCaprio were, was slowly poisoning me with heroin. <laughs> anyway, very worthy, very worthy. And also, what an amazing thing that a studio, or not even a studio, but Apple, you know, you go where the money is. He, I mean, $200 million to make a movie like this in this day and age, to play in a theater, to insist that it does. I think it's like, yeah, eat your, eat your vegetables, take your medicine. But people really should because they're not going to make movies like this anymore. Yeah, it's a throwback to sort of uh, the uh, old Eat Your Vegetables movies of the 1980s, uh, the Gandhi-type movies, uh, you know, the ones where, they, where you're learning about history while also watching watching a movie. Yeah, They probably won't, although uh, keep in mind that Ridley Scott's Napoleon is coming. Oh, there you go. I, I guarantee you that won't be boring. I think if you cast Joaquin Phoenix as Napoleon, you're not going to be reverent. You're going to cast Joaquin Phoenix in the Leonardo DiCaprio role. <laughs> or, the, or, or the Robert De Niro role. That would have been awesome. Look, I got to say, though, you know, if we're talking about it, and you've already mentioned it, uh, Oppenheimer, if there's a roadmap to the future of movie going where you can have big, weighty historical epics that have a long running time, he clearly threaded that needle and it's, it, it, people responded. So I, it is possible... I, I, I wish Flower and Moon were more compelling, but it was hard to watch a second time. And to your point, I don't look forward to the next time I see it. All right. Well, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, Oscar season is upon us, and it's going to get a nomination. But and I thought it was a shoe in to win until, until I saw it. There's a lot of great stuff in it. There's a lot of great stuff in it, don't you think? I, I Absolutely impressive. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, it's Martin Scorsese. Even if it's not the best Martin Scorsese picture, it's still a Martin Scorsese picture. At, at the end of a very long day, it's still, you know, impressive. Yeah, um, you're, you're going to need some coffee. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Stephen Garrett, thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Yep. Your Honor, no matter how much evidence stacked against them, the Usher crime family stands stronger and darker than ever before. Anyone comes after us, we will exhaust our arsenal until the threat's neutralized. By neutralized, you mean sued into oblivion on the streets? Neutralized. Like dead. You guys, we really should get together more often. It's just a balm for the soul. Roderick Usher. Your family is a collection of stunted hearts. Whose time has come? Nevermore. 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 The House of Usher. May it rest in peace. It is Halloween season, 
and there are lots of shows on your television depicting uh, spooky baking, spooky baking championship, the Halloween championship bake off, scary ghost cakes or whatever. But there are also some legitimate scary Halloween entries. And the most high profile one is The Fall of the House of Usher on Netflix. And this is a, a series that actually debuted at uh, Austin's Fantastic Fest. And I had uh, some screeners to early episodes and got to watch it a bit before our critic, Scott Gold. And he's here to talk to me about it. Uh, the Fall of the House of Usher is uh, created by Mike Flanagan, who has become very well regarded in recent years for his adaptations of The Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor, and other programs. Anyway, Scott is a big Mike Flanagan fan, and he's here to talk to me about The Fall of the House of Usher. Hello. Hey, Neil. Great to be back on the podcast. Every week, it seems like we talk about something. Hey, I'm here for it, man. Yeah, all right, me too. So, yeah, so this is a, you know, this is not um, a straightforward Poe adaptation. You know, The Fall of the House of Usher is a classic Edgar Allan Poe short story, but this, to say the least, takes some liberties with the works of Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, I think uh, Mike Flanagan took the Poe concept and just ran with it and never stopped running, probably when he should have. <laughs> Um, I think the idea was not obviously the fall of the house of Usher as a story. It's a quaint story and it would make for a nice, you know, 30 minute episode of TV, but, uh, not a mini series. So what Flanagan has decided to do is basically take everything that Poe has ever done and somehow make it relate to this one story in uh, a single mini series. And it is just kind of bananas how overstuffed the Poe references are. But overall, um, I really enjoyed it. I enjoy Edgar Allan Poe. I have since I was a kid. And I was kind of geeking out on the Easter eggs for a little bit. But uh, it's it's a lot, especially if you like Poe. It is a lot. Well, you know, the thing is, is that, yes, there's a lot. It's a lot of Poe references. Like, you know, there's a character named Arthur Gordon Pym. Uh, Roderick Usher's granddaughter is named Lenore, which, of course, is the name of uh, the, the long lost uh, lover. In uh, the poem "The Raven," the the villain, the villainess, is named Averna, which uh, anagrams to Avern, but also to Raven. And and each of um, it's no spoiler that this Roderick Usher character has lots of children, and they each die in a manner related to some classic Edgar Allan Poe story. So it's it's all over the place. Right. It's very much a love song to Edgar Allan Poe. And it's really interesting to see how Flanagan found ways to kind of weave everything in. So, you know, there's uh, obvious references to things like, you know, the Raven and uh, the Pit and the Pendulum, the Mask of the Red Death. Uh, Every episode, I think, is named after a Poe story. But overarching, you have this original story of who his Roderick Usher is and who his Madeline Usher is and how they relate. And they have their children and essentially what boils down to some kind of Faustian bargain in which, uh, you know, all these children die. But it's told in retrospect as uh, Roderick, who is the, you know, billionaire CEO of a very thinly veiled pharmaceutical companies that makes opioids. So, you know, clearly Sackler family. And uh, he's risen and all of his children like succession are kind of vying for his attention, his respect, his money. And because of whatever supernatural forces come about due to you know all of the death and dismay he's brought into the world in each episode each of his children die in a particularly grisly way which is really not terrible to watch because none of them are particularly great people so right they're all they're all amoral they're amoral uh rich rich scumbags representing different segments of um 
horrible um, professions that rich people you, you know take on. They're like venture capitalists, or they're like media magnets, or they're like party boys. These are not you know aid workers, doctors, editors of pop culture websites, things that contribute to society. Yeah, so I, I get all that. And I don't really have um, any beef with any of the performances in the show. I mean, Bruce Greenwood uh, is one of the great actors you know, on the screen. And, you know, he is fantastic as Roderick Usher. And, you know, Mary McDonnell plays his sister, and she's very good. Uh, Mark Hamill really hams it up as a mysterious lawyer. Um, Henry Thomas, E.T.'s Henry Thomas, is the oldest child. I thought he was a lot of fun. And, and Carla Gugino is the um, the supernatural antagonist, and she is always uh, great to watch. So, it, it, so it's very watchable. I guess. Well, there's a couple things that 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 um, bothered me about the show. One, I don't like the flashback narrative structure. I, I never have. There's really very few circumstances in which a flashback narrative structure works, and the way, especially the first episode, goes back and forth and all over in time. I felt like it might a more straightforward presentation. I felt like might have been more effective. And I also just like you know, I, I like you. I you know, I, we all grew up as people who love reading, reading Edgar Allan Poe, right? Like you read it, you read the stories probably in school, but even outside of school, you know, they they, they hold up. You know, the stories are still extremely well crafted, very scary, and and lots of fun to read. I I memorized the Telltale Heart for a school assignment, the entire story. Back in the day when I could memorize anything, you know, longer than a, than a grocery list before age and uh, marijuana had diluted my capacities. So, I mean, I love Edgar Allan Poe. I just, I wonder, like, why do you need to do like a, there's so much, uh, there's so many series that um, criticize and chronicle the evils of Big Pharma. There have been, you know, half a dozen in the last two years. And like you mentioned Succession, and a lot of these characters felt like kind of warmed over versions of the Roy siblings from succession they didn't feel like fully realized characters to me yeah no they didn't they're all stock characters for sure however the thing that really saved me was the writing and the performances i think in less capable hands it would be too one note too cheesy you know if the acting wasn't great and the scripts that they were provided weren't very good and mike flanagan is great when it comes to dialogue probably a little too great um he goes off with the monologues in a lot of his series midnight mass if you've ever seen it has some very long-winded monologues but they're fairly gripping uh i never once even in these long monologues felt like turning it off and some of them there's this uh i i link to it in my forthcoming review of this show where you know it wasn't even a necessary monologue other than to showcase a little bit of who Roderick usher is but he goes off on a riff on the whole turning lemons into lemonade thing. And it is just mesmerizing, mostly due to Bruce Greenwood's fantastic performance, also to, to the dialogue, and also the way that he plays off of his foil, who is a U.S. attorney investigating him, who has been trying to nail him down for decades, uh, named C. Auguste Dupin, who you might rec recognize as the original detective in Poe's work, played masterfully here by Carl Lumley, who uh, who also played the Scatman Crother character in Doctor Sleep, Mike Flanagan's adaptation of Stephen King's sequel to The Shining, uh, and he's just wonderful here. And the way they play off each other, you know, the upright, virtuous, moral U.S. attorney versus the most amoral billionaire a hole you can probably imagine, and it's just it's it's really fun and mesmerizing to watch. And I think if anybody other than Mike Flanagan had tried it, the chances of failure would have been pretty high. But I enjoyed it myself. 
80s kids will remember that Bruce Greenwood was uh, a late edition cast member to St. Elsewhere, a show you probably didn't watch, but I did and loved. And Carl Lumbly, who plays the attorney, was a supporting character on Cagney and Lacey. So, that I did not. Yeah, he was like he was like an extra detective that did it. He was he was the black guy in the in the precinct. Um, and so uh, so there's there's like a for people who like 80s TV that it's kind of fun to watch the two of them go at each other, and they are both great actors. Look, there's great acting throughout this. I just I guess I I couldn't help but continually compare it to Wes Anderson's recent Roald Dahl adaptations. You know, he basically adapted a bunch of short stories. And you know, they're stylized, Wes Anderson stylized. We've talked about this on the show already. But they are, it's Roald Dahl's words on the screen acted out. And I guess for me, it's, I feel like it's been a while since we've seen an adaptation of an of Edgar Allan Poe story um, made into a movie or a TV show. And I, I know Mike, look, Mike Lanigan is he's his own guy. He does, he, 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 re, he reinterpreted, you know, sure, a Shirley Jackson novel, you know, and you can't get much more um, technically perfect uh, than Shirley, you know, and, and Henry James. I mean, he takes these sort of technically perfect um, works of fiction and he, and he puts his own spin on it. I realize that's what he does and it takes a lot of skill. I personally might've, might've wanted to see the actual Edgar Allan Poe stories, maybe modernized to the present day, but uh, I didn't have the deal with Netflix. So <laughs> They they gave it to Mike Flanagan, but that, but this is it. Like this is the Poe. This is the modern Poe. This is what we're gonna get. Yes, I don't know how you could do any more Poe in a single miniseries, you know. And one thing that I did find, and I mentioned it earlier, a little bit distracting was just how overstuffed it is with all of the Poe references. Like at one point, again, like there's a throwaway line about uh, Lenore, who's the granddaughter. Uh, of Roderick Usher once calling her grandfather Grampus. And that line is solely shoehorned in there because it's a reference to the boat in the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, which was Poe's uh, only novel. Also a big shout out to the novel Pym, if you've never read it, which is Matt Johnson's novel, a reinterpretation of Poe's work kind of, and it's uh, also a lot of fun. But um, yeah, you can't get any more Poe than you do in this story. And another thing that broke me out was kind of wondering where this world existed. I didn't get to write about this, but at one point they turn on the television and they turn on Netflix, obviously, because it's a Netflix series and they're scrolling through and you see references to Gerald's game and uh, and then the the old version, uh, the old movie version of The Pit and the Pendulum is on. I was like, where does this, in what narrative space does this exist? In what kind of universe where there's a Poe adaptation on the television while they're living in a post story i was like what is going on here but then i thought you know what it's just fun it's tv i'm not going to pay it too much money well as long as you watch it on a midnight dreary and you ponder it weak and weary i guess you'll enjoy uh the fall of the house of usher i your mileage will vary scott seemed to get a lot of mileage out of it i, I got a little bit less but it's you know it's definitely worth talking about and it's uh, super popular right now and it is halloween so happy hauntings. Uh, Scott, you be safe out there. New Orleans can get pretty spooky this time of year. Oh, thanks a lot, Neil. You too. All right. Thank you so much, Scott Gold. The Fall of the House of Usher is now available during spooky season on Netflix. Also, thanks to Stephen Garrett for talking to me about Killers of the Flower Moon, the very long new movie from Martin Scorsese. And thanks to Sharon Vane for stopping in to talk about the controversial decision by Scholastic uh, Affairs to 
put certain kinds of books in a, a special box that will allow librarians to make choices and will also allow school districts to restrict access to certain books and make it easier for them. And that's, that's not right. And we cover that kind of thing here on Book and Film Globe. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of that website, www.bookandfilmclub.com. I am the host of this podcast, and I thank you so much for listening to the show and for reading the site and for continuing to engage in the culture in these very troubled times. All right. We're not troubled right now. We're happy. We're going to go watch some TV and watch some movies. We'll talk to you next week. Original Production.